Welcome back, everybody. Hi. I'm Mel. I'm Matt. So we're, I don't know, like thigh deep, not thigh deep, maybe calf deep into season two. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, we've got a couple episodes out and I think I put disclaimers in those previous ones that they were recorded quite a while ago. We're kind of in the middle of 2020, which is kind of bad, kind of bad, sad, bad. So um, we just wanted to kind of get through our backlog and now we're we're finally recording a new and um, I think we have one more backlog episode that's going to go before this one. So if you're a regular listener, you've already heard it. So time travel. Now we're we're kind of on to some fresh new stuff at the end of July 2020 here. So and we're recording in a brand new way. So I know we had gotten a lot of comments kind of about the levels and the volume difference. Um, but we've sort of invested in changing the way that we record. So hopefully you'll notice some kind of good quality difference. Um, I don't know that we have the know-how to go back and like remaster previous episodes without really re-recording them. Yeah, we which is like just, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, we basically just uploaded a lot of raw files. Not raw files, but like, you know, we had audio files that I made some very basic cutting and pasting and, you know, insertions to and tightening of like the actual content. But in terms of like audio fixing, it was just kind of like the raw stuff that went up. And I know there's some mm -hmm. fancy tricks and fun stuff you can do with that, but I don't think we're probably going to do that. Those those are part of our history and we're just going to let them live. We learned from them. We grew and now here we are back and better than ever. We are still recording over Discord. So there is like that because we're in different parts of the country. But that's just not something we're ever going to really get past. Yes, just... unless one of us moves, which who knows? Who knows what the next decade will bring? But who knows? That's the time scale we're looking at. Decade. Anyway. Oh yeah, decade. But that's OK. It's fine. It'll be fine. So anyway, welcome back. Thank you so much for listening. Um, today we have a two-parter episode, so we're going to kind of cover the initial case and then we're going to go into some other cases that might be related to this one. Um, so we'll kind of present the initial information and then we're going to kind of find out more um, as we kind of go along with the investigation and see what was found out and kind of what suspects have been looked at for this case. So I'm, I'm very excited. Are you are you ready to hear about the Cowden family murders? I am very ready. Let's uh, let's get to it. Along the southwestern coast of Oregon and the northwestern coast of California, there is a vast mountain range called the Klamath Mountains. This land is rough, rugged, and sparsely populated. The geology here is quite varied with deposits of various minerals, and the climate here, because of the mountains, has cold winters with heavy snowfall and dry, hot summers. And because of the climate and the soil, conifers grow in abundance here to the point where this mountain range can boast one of the largest collections of conifers on the planet. 
A wide array of animals make their home in these mountains, such as large cats, black bears, and eagles, among many others. Now, the northernmost and largest subrange of the Klamath Mountains are the Siskiyou Mountains, which run from east of Crescent City, California, all the way up into the Josephine and Jackson County areas of Oregon. Now, this part of the Klamath Mountains is a bit special. Due to the relief so close to the Pacific Ocean, these peaks receive more precipitation than the surrounding land, which leads the forest to have thick, dense vegetation. Keep that in mind as we dive into our case for today. Picture that you're out with your family to enjoy some camping over the Labor Day weekend. The weather is gorgeous, albeit warm, with highs in the mid-90s or low 30s Celsius, but not a drop of rain in sight. You're at a popular picnicking site, and you're only about a mile away from the quaint little town of Copper, and you've even made a stop at the small grocery nearby to buy some milk. What happens next? So to set the scene, we're in, like, peak Pacific Northwest, peak forests. This is, like, you know, typical, incredible rainy weather, incredible forests, incredible mountainous mm-hmm. views. Like right, I think that when people... Camping areas. Yeah, I think that when people think of the Pacific Northwest, sometimes, especially if they're not from the area, they think of like Portland and Seattle, which are like bustling metropolises. But we also have to keep in mind that this area, for the most part, is very vast and sparsely populated. There's a lot of forest. There's a lot of nature. Um, it's not as like a dense of a city center as like New York City or, you know, like around Dallas, Texas or areas like that. I mean, a big part of like Washington and Oregon and Northern California are not densely populated. A lot of them are huge, like national parks. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of wilderness out there. Like Seattle and Portland are are typically seen as very dense cities, but they're not necessarily sprawling cities. You drive about Mm -hmm. a half an hour outside of them and you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's a beautiful area, but, but it is, It's out there. Right. And that's part of the reason why I made a map, which we'll make available to our listeners, which I know if you're, you know, listening on the, you know, drive into work or something like that, you probably won't be able to look at. But if, you know, after the case, you kind of want to get a better idea of the points that we talk about in this story. You can take a look at this map and it'll help you better better to understand because that's something that I kind of struggled with when I was first researching this case is just getting a really good understanding of how something like this could happen because I didn't know the area very well and thinking about, okay, well, certainly somebody must have, you know, seen or heard something, but that's like really not the case. And that's what we're going to kind of talk about. You're making me really um, nervous for what's happening. Like, I know, I know we already set it up with the title and sounds kind of brutal, but you're making me nervous. Um, and that, that real quick. So we'll put the map in the sources and what I'll actually do is attach it as a photo. So in most podcatchers, um, you'll be able to see some of the pictures that we upload underneath our, our show notes and source material. Mm-hmm. And then below that, we usually have hyperlinks for for all of our sources. Yeah. And so like, it's kind of like a background note. I mean, I think that Wikipedia is a good starting point for any case, like any big, like a case that has a lot of coverage, um, but then obviously going further than that. So um, for instance, in this case, I have over 10 sources that I used. Um, that doesn't mean that that's every single source on the things that we're going to talk about, but that's how many that I looked at. Um, and we actually do have a reference. I didn't listen to their episode of the podcast, um, but another podcast has also covered this case. 
So if um, that's something that you want to check out, that's the Terrell Went Cold. They're very highly regarded and rightfully so true crime podcast. So I didn't listen to it because I didn't want it to kind of not, I don't want to say taint, but I didn't want to have it influence too much my discovery and my reading. Um, but if this is a case where you went, wow, that's really interesting. And you wanted to hear a different perspective on how it's presented, I would definitely check them out. Um, so we have them listed in our sources as well. And also a really big help to me as I kind of got a deeper dive into this case was going um, to read Ann Rule's book, But I Trusted You. Um, so Ann Rule's kind of like a grab bag because it's hard for me to know how much of what she wrote was dramatization versus how much of it was like eyewitness kind of firsthand accounts just because mm -hmm. she doesn't have like a detailed resource list where she's like, okay, so for this case, here's like every single person I talked to. But I thought it was really interesting and really well presented. So I'm also going to say big shout out to Anne Rule, kind of the queen of true crime. Uh, so if you also found this case interesting and wanted to read more or, you know, read more that she's kind of grouped together, her book, But I Trusted You, is definitely one to check out. Awesome. I'll make sure that's that's in the show notes. So uh, should we dive in? I'm, I'm really nervous here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to kind of get started, I wanted to talk about the family. So we're talking about the Cowden family. So Richard Cowden is the father in this case. And this happened in 1974. So this didn't happen yesterday. It happened quite a while ago. And in 1974, Richard was 28 years old, which is kind of like weird for me to think about because I'm 28 years old. Um, and I did don't have a family. Like I don't have children. I have family members, but I don't have children. So I'm kind of at a completely different point in my life than he was. Um, but to think that we are the same age is it's just weird to think about. Um, right. And so Richard was from White City, Oregon, which is a fairly small community um, and today has less than 10,000 residents. So it even had fewer back then. I think it was like 6,500 is what I read somewhere, but don't quote me on that. That's so pretty town. small, yeah. right? Which is much smaller than where I live or anywhere that I have lived. Um, but he seems, I mean, for everything that I could tell, very happy with his life. So he worked as a log truck driver. So logging is a really big thing in the Pacific Northwest. And that paid him actually very decent wages. So he was able to really care for his young family pretty well. So, you know, they didn't have any financial struggles that we know of. You know, they had a nice home um, and he had a very stable family life. So apart from his wife and his children, he was very close to his parents and his siblings. Um, and actually kind of tragically, his older brother had died from cancer when his older brother was 25. So very recently they had suffered a pretty big loss in the family. You know, God, you don't think of right. You don't think of your family members like your siblings passing away in their 20s. And so that was something that was really hard for his family, but made them closer because they kind of had to go through that trauma together. Uh, Belinda June was his wife and she was 22 years old at the time of the story. And I really couldn't find a whole lot about her life. A lot of what I read was about like Richard and his family. So I don't know if that's because her family was maybe just inherently more private. Did you say or Belinda if, June? Belinda. Yes. With Belinda. a B. Gotcha. So sorry, I'm a little bit hard of hearing and sometimes I can't even hear the difference between letters when I speak. So <laughs> Belinda. Yes. <laughs> Belinda, um, got it. Yes. And so I, I can't really go into her background as much because I just couldn't find any sources. 
Uh, but the two of them had two children. So they had a son, David James Phillips, who was five years old. And then they had a daughter, Melissa Dawn Cowden. So my name, Melissa, which is also just a weird coincidence. And she was only five months old. So she was like a tiny baby. You know, wow. she couldn't walk yet. You know, they she's a brand new kind of addition to the family. So they have a um, five-year-old and a five-month-old. Yes. Wow. And by all accounts, they were a very happy young couple. Um, you know, they also had just gotten a basset hound puppy named Droopy, which I just oh. love. Oh, no. Yeah. The name Droopy for, okay, so spoiler alert, Tell the dog, the dog survived. Out, okay. okay. Yeah, I feel really bad saying that. Like, obviously, it is really unfortunate when we talk about people dying, but I know a lot of people have, like, they're very sensitive about animals and animal cruelty, but Droopy is okay. So a lot of people care a lot more about animals than people sometimes that's that just happens i don't know why that happens but it does happen well fun it happens human psychology yeah it's because dogs are great i mean that's why it happens but basset right, so droopy oh my god yes a basset home puppy named droopy um and like i said i couldn't find anything to suggest that they weren't just kind of like a normal family you know living their best life they had um in ann Rill's book she specifically says that they had a three-bedroom two-bathroom home with two cars to their name a truck and a sedan like Ooh. very specific ann <laughs> wow but so they, you know, they were doing pretty good. I mean, they didn't have a lot of financial struggles. They didn't, you know, it wasn't like they were brand new to the area or anything like that. Um, and one of the biggest things that I read about them was that they loved to camp. And this is important because this camping trip that they go on is to an area that they were very familiar with. So they went camping as a family all the time in the surrounding area. Um, and they were very familiar with their surroundings. Okay. So young family so I, in a small town, middle class, five-year-old, five-month-old, love to camp, mm -hmm. love to do outdoor things, probably because probably because that's that's like a really inexpensive and easy way to kind of go on vacation with your family, like, and you can do mm -hmm. it all the time without a lot of pre-planning, like you can just pack up for the weekend and go on a camping trip and come back. Cute family. Right, which, I'm on right, which leads us to uh, Labor Day weekend. So on August this 30th of 1974. Yes, August 30th Sorry. of 1974. Uh, Richard had originally planned on hauling some gravel for their driveway this weekend um, and was going to spend the weekend finishing up the chore. However, this truck that he was going to borrow unexpectedly broke down. So he wasn't using his own truck. And I couldn't really find out why Like they had a truck, why it couldn't be used. I don't know if maybe it was just older and couldn't like do the hauling needed. Like no, no sources told me why this was, but he was going to borrow a truck and the truck broke down. So now their weekend was like wide open. And like you said, camping is a very easy, cheap way to kind of get away and do something fun for the weekend. So they decided to do this and go on a camping trip into the Siskiyou mountains with their family. It's just crazy that, like, I know we know what happens because it's called the Cowden family murder. But like, it's crazy to think that like maintenance issues on a truck that he was going to borrow is what led to the events of this story, basically. Right. There's a cascade of events that led to what we will eventually get to. Right. So, yeah, it's just an innocuous thing. And then it became more than that. Um, and like I said, the family camped here in this region very frequently. So this wasn't a brand new place that they were going to. They had gone here many times before. So they decided to go out and they set out on Saturday. 
and they get all set up, you know, park their truck, get their tent set up, all that kind of stuff. And the next morning, which is Sunday, September 1st, Richard took his son, David, with him. So as we were talking about, he is a five-year-old and they go to the nearby town of Copper and they decided to walk since it was only about a mile away from their campsite. And as a note, the town of Copper no longer exists. So it's now been flooded from the Applegate River Dam, which was uh, created so that there would now be an Applegate Lake. So at the time, there was not a lake. I was about to ask you if they're like if it's a ghost town now or something like a spooky place of abandoned buildings, but it's even worse. It's a water ghost town. It's a, it's a water ghost town. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Because they decided to yeah, they decided to dam up the river to make a lake. And Copper was never very big, so it wasn't like this bustling metropolis that then oh my god, my cat's being really naughty. I'm so sorry. We're gonna have to cut that. She ran away. Oh, I missed it. Okay. I was looking at the map. Uh <laughs> that's okay, in. anyway. So Copper was never a a metropolis. It was never, you know, this huge town or anything like that. Um, So it no longer exists. So we couldn't, you know, go there and kind of see this general store. But at the time, it did exist in 1974. So they decided to go into this um, small town to go to the general store, which is one of the only kind of businesses there. And they arrive at about 9 a.m. and they bought some milk. Pretty innocuous. Uh, but this was the very last confirmed sighting of the family alive. Oh, my God. When you were talking about milk before during the intro, I was like, yeah, I bought some milk. But no, this is the last seating. This is the last sighting of them actually being alive and somewhere mm-hmm. with other people. Correct. Right. Wow. Exactly. And it was just the dad, Richard and the son. Yep, that's correct. Just the two okay. of them. So that leads us to the disappearance. So later that evening, so remember this is Sunday, September 1st, the family had planned to stop at Belinda's mother's home for dinner. So Belinda's mother only lived like a mile away from their campsite. So not like right next to the general store, but a mile away. And she also lived in Copper and one of the few homes that was there. And she knew exactly where her daughter and her son-in-law and her grandchildren were planning to camp. Because like I said, this is an area that they've camped before. It's a known campsite. Gotcha. So they like went out here to presumably, you know, visit the visit, visit her mom, visit the in-laws, say hi to grandma, go camping for a weekend. Wholesome, fun, precious. Right. So the idea was that they would camp and then kind of end up like kind of round out their camping trip. They would go to have dinner with Belinda's mother, you know, catch up for a little bit and then go back home. So Belinda's mother reasonably got worried when she hadn't heard from the family. Um, And she decided that, you know what, like I know exactly where they're camping. I will just go to that area. I'll just like drive my car and I'll just check on them. Maybe they lost track of time. Maybe something came up. You know, she's not trying to panic immediately, but obviously she's concerned. And this is 1974 before cell phones. Not that you would necessarily have service, but I mean, she had to go and check it out for herself to try and figure out what was going on. I'm so anxious for this woman. (laughs) Well, so Belinda's mother, who is never named, so I don't know what her name is. That's not me, like, purposely admitting her name. I just could never find it anywhere. Um, When she arrived, there was no sign of her daughter or her grandchildren or her son-in-law or really anybody. What about their camping stuff? That's what we're going to get to. 
So their vehicle was still parked nearby on Carberry Creek Road, which for the longest time, my mind like autocorrected to Cranberry, but it's not Cranberry. It's Carberry Creek Road. Like C-A-R-Berry? Yes. Like a Carberry. Yes. Um, And the keys were easily spotted on the picnic table at the campsite. So that was really bizarre and kind of instantly set off alarm bells for Melinda's, Belinda's mother. Yeah, no kidding. That's, hmm. And that's not all she found. So she could also see like a, like a tin dish pan laying on the ground and it was filled with cold water and kind of more worrisome than that even was that Belinda's purse was also in plain sight on the picnic table. So it wasn't like underneath, it wasn't cast off. Like it was sitting right on top of the picnic table. So Um, these people either left in a very big hurry or, you know, left uh of not of their own free will this is like when you walk into like an apartment during a like i don't know some apocalypse movie or something and there's like you know a tea kettle still on the stove and it's warm and there's like a piece of pizza on a plate that has one bite taken out of it or something like right exactly this is like extremely bizarre and not something you would expect to see like slice of life there should be people here and there aren't right right And she found several other items, too. So things like a diaper bag, the camping stove, and then a half-finished carton of milk, which would later be confirmed to be that carton of milk that... um, Oh, my God, we're going to have to cut this. I'm so terrible. That Richard and his son... (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to cut that. um, Was, you know, later matched to be the same exact carton that Richard and his son had bought at that general store that we talked about. So more, I mean, even more like conspicuous, you don't, even if you're going to go through for like a walk in the woods with your family, you don't do that with a five month old without bringing the diaper bag with. You can leave your purse behind. You can leave the milk behind. You can leave the keys to the car behind. You cannot leave the diaper bag behind. That is just not a thing you can do. Well, and also, you know, if they're experienced campers, you know not to leave food out. Because there are bears and raccoons and like not saying that they'll hurt you, but I mean, they'll rifle through your stuff. Right. Right. Um, And then what was also really bizarre was that Richard had a very expensive watch and his watch and his wallet were found on the ground. um, Kind of near an open pack of cigarettes that matched the brand that Belinda smoked. So if this were a robbery, right, like if I just happened upon a family in the woods and I was holding them up for money, like I would have rifled through the purse and I would have, you know, taken stolen watch, from that. I would have wallet. taken the watch. I would have taken the wallet. Right. So like it just nothing made sense here. I mean, it seemed almost like they had been abducted from alien, like abducted by aliens. Like it was just super weird. Wow. And then moreover than that, like the family's clothing was found in their vehicle and the only clothing missing were their swimsuits. And so you might think, okay, so there's a creek nearby, maybe something happened to them. But at this time, apparently the creek's water was very, very low. It was like reportedly low. So it would seem very bizarre that two adults and two children would all drown in a creek when the water is not very high and it's not very fast and there isn't a big current and all these sorts of things. Right. So so just to set the scene, everything... All of the valuable possessions of this family, like even personal effects that they would have on them, like purses, diaper bags, watches, wallets, and all of their clothing 
has been found at or around their campsite and they are missing. And the only pieces of clothing that are also missing are swimsuits. Mm-hmm. So they. Wow, that's spooky. It is very spooky. And there's nowhere uh, around also- that they could swim because the creek was so low. Right. It's just, you know, and at the time, like we said, there wasn't the lake nearby. Um, it hadn't been dammed up yet. So there wasn't kind of like a huge open area of water nearby. Um, wow. And also reported missing was this like plastic baby carrier that Melissa, the five month old baby, would often be seated in. Because she's a five month old baby. Because she's a five month old and she can't really like sit up or walk or any of these things on her own yet. Right. So this is very bizarre. This is like not normal. This is super weird. So Belinda's mother waited for about an hour and then she was like, okay, this is too much. Like my alarm bells are just going off at full blast. Like I need to call the police. So she left the campsite to drive home. Um, and that's something that I found from Ann Roll's book. So she said specifically that Belinda's mother went back to her car and then drove home to call the police as opposed to like going to the general store and trying to use their phone or something like that. But I mean, either way, she called the police. It would not have taken her that long because the campsite is only about a mile away from her house. So this is like a pretty short period of time. Yeah. And the the best part about this is, is, you know, in a lot of our cases, we talk about someone alerting the police and the police are like, eh, whatever, like, we'll just give it a day or two. It'll be fine. She and that did not happen boy. in this case. <laughs> right. Right. This did not happen here. So that was kind of nice. So like the sheriff came out, state troopers came out, oh, like the God. Oregon State Police came out. Like instantly, a lot of people came out. So obviously, a lot of people immediately thought that this was concerning, which rightfully so. Right. Right. Um, The important thing to note here, though, is that it's it's, you know, summer kind of getting into fall. So the you know sun stays out for quite a bit still. Um, But it was still like pretty late in the evening by the time that Belinda's mother got to the site and then she waited an hour and then it took time for the police to come. So they searched as best they could until night fell, but then it became very dark. And like we were, you know, discussing in our intro, this is a very densely vegetated area. This is not just like an open plain field. So at some point in the night, they had to stop um, and they had the presence of mind to leave officers behind to guard the scene, which is okay. That's great. Perfect. <laughs> cool. Um, and at this point, it's important to note, though, that they weren't really thinking foul play. So like my mind immediately goes to foul play because this is so weird and bizarre. But at the time, the police were thinking that like some kind of accident had happened. You know, maybe there was like an animal attack, which also seems kind of unlikely. But they were kind of thinking anything other than a human hurting other humans on purpose at this point. I mean, they probably left the police behind because like you know maybe they went they put on their bathing suits they went down to the river to you know maybe just splash around in the water or you know get the baby used to water something like that or maybe wash the baby or something because they have a five-month-old and then they got turned around walking back to the campsite or something like that so they probably left the officers behind in case they wandered their way back to light you know they probably left like headlights on on the car to help give them a guiding light home something like that like if they're not thinking foul play here because why would you like i know this is called the cowden family murders <laughs> i know the title ahead of time and so so does the audience but like in situ 
you, you wouldn't necessarily think foul play. This is a nice young family out in the middle of nowhere from small towns in a small town. You would think the best and, and just assume maybe they got lost in the woods and hope that everything's going to be okay tomorrow. Right. Um, and it's important to note, you know, something that I've read in a couple of different sources was that Lieutenant Mark Kazar, who headed the case, would later be quoted as saying that the investigation had been, quote, delayed for maybe a day, end quote, because they didn't have any evidence of foul play or violence at the campsite. Right. So they clearly yeah. came and they looked and they were like, OK, here are the things that I can see. But they didn't immediately go, OK, we need to like be on the lookout for a dangerous person who could have hurt this family. That's not something that crossed their mind. Right. They were hoping um, the family was still alive and just like lost somewhere, probably. Right. And, and it was noted that there was a sense of unease at the site. So a state trooper, last name Erickson, would also be quoted as saying, quote, that camp was spooky. Even the milk was still on the table, unquote. So there was like a general sense of malaise, like, you know, people were a little bit concerned. There was spookiness, right. But they weren't kind of in full attack mode yet. They weren't fully invested in this was a homicide case. Right. That makes sense. And so the next morning, which was Labor Day, which is September 2nd, um, the family's dog, Droopy, was found scratching at the door to the Copper General. Oh. He was a little bit dehydrated, but otherwise he was perfectly okay. So that was bizarre. They were like, okay, well, so we didn't find the dog immediately. We assumed that the dog was the family, but now the dog has showed up at the general store. Like, that's super weird. That's very um, weird. And, right. And so later, police would question some campers in the nearby area. And some of these campers said that they saw a dog fitting Droopy's description about six miles or so from the campsite, but that he was alone and they didn't have any further information. So I don't know if like they stopped and tried to get Droopy to come to them. And he was like, no, I don't trust you. You're strangers and ran away. Or if they just didn't think anything of it, you know, because I'm feeling this is kind of a I don't want to say safe area, but I could see people like having unleashed dogs out in the woods and letting their dogs kind of like run around and roam around and then come back. So it could be that the family didn't really think anything about this was weird. Um, but that's all that they knew. They didn't see the family. They didn't see anybody else. They saw a dog matching the description about six miles away. And that's kind of it. Wow. So this brings us to the search, because obviously at some point we need to realize that something is very wrong here and that we need to start searching for the family. When the dog turns um, up without the family, something's horrible. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So it's important to note here that the search for the Cowden family actually turned into one of the largest searches in Oregon state history. Oh. Um, yeah, it included local police, it included state police, the U.S. Forest Service, the Oregon National um, Guard, and like hundreds of nearby vol of near of volunteers, excuse me, from places both nearby and far. So people were very invested in this case and trying to find the family. Damn. And the U.S. Forest Service searched like 25 miles of roads and trails surrounding the campsite, hoping that they would find something. That's a crazy, that's crazy. 25 miles. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of ground to cover. And that's helicopters. Like, oh, that's a lot of like branching trails too. Like, mm -hmm. they, like I, I was in kind of the south of Portland area not that long ago, uh, just like on a vacation. And, you know, you go walking in a state park or a national forest and it's like, it's so easy to get lost. Like we we truly live in a privileged time of GPS and like downloadable maps on our smart devices that last, you know, days and battery. Like 
I, I can't imagine, you know, even somebody working for the Forest Service having to search, you know, 25 miles in every direction around the campsite. Those trails are, that's a lot to follow on a lot of path to go down on a lot of, a lot of just area to cover. A lot of snaking trails through all these woods. Like that's, that's a huge effort. Right, exactly. And we have to keep in mind too that there's a difference between searching and you walking a trail. Because if you're walking, you're just walking, you might get like distracted by a cool plant or an animal or something, but you're just, your, your purpose and your goal is to walk. They're searching, which means that they are stopping. They are kind of combing through the area. They're going very slowly. Like They're it's a totally different from process. The trails and looking in bushes, looking behind trees, looking in dense areas, looking over cliffs, looking over, you know, hills, looking in holes, like everywhere. Right, right. And so to help aid this, um, you know, helicopters and planes were also flown over the area and you can't really fly over the area and expect someone to like see something from a helicopter. So what they were doing is they were using infrared imaging to try and locate the family. So they were taking tons and tons of infrared pictures. And the reason why is because when you have disturbed dirt and vegetation um, that has been kind of recently moved, it shows up on that imaging as bright red. So you might not be able to see anything with your naked eye. You would just see kind of trees and green, but this is something that the imaging would pick up. Um, and then hopefully you would be able to use that to try and pinpoint a location. So they've actually done something very similar. Um, I don't know if our listeners know, maybe we'll talk about it one day. Let us know if you want us to, but with the West Mesa serial killer, they've long suspected that there are more burial sites out there. And a big part of what they do is they look at infrared imaging yes. because it's not something that you would be able to see with the naked eye, but you can see recently disturbed ground because of that imaging. Wow, that's really cool. That's actually really cool that they had that technology like in the 70s. <laughs> I wouldn't Right. I mean, that, they didn't have Right, they didn't have instant gratification and that they couldn't like look at a screen and would tell them. I'm sure that they had to develop the photos, which right. made it a little bit harder, but I mean, they were trying to use everything they could to find this family. Um and, you know, like I said, there were tons of volunteers, so lots of manpower, but even after all of this, everyone turned up empty-handed. There was just no sight of the family, no clues, nothing. The only clue that they discovered, in fact, after Belinda's mother called the police was Droopy at the general store. Wow. Right, which is like totally bonkers. I mean, that just blows my mind that they didn't find like a scrap of fabric, which I guess they're wearing swimsuits, so that doesn't have a ton of extra fabric, but like they didn't find anything which was just super weird right and um they spent a lot of time on it i don't want people to think that they kind of half asked what they were doing um the previously mentioned lieutenant mark kazar said at one point um quote i felt like that campground was my second home unquote oh wow so, so like, they spent a lot of time there. yeah so the official search only lasted until september 7th but friends and family spent even more hours on weekends and their vacation time to try and search for the family. And they did not give up hope, um, including especially, especially Richard's father and his brother, Wes. So Richard's father had actually been a trapper um, and he knew the trails and the woods around the area really, really well. Um, but their searches came up empty also, which was really bizarre because here's someone who also knows the area very intimately and kind of had to for his job. And he also didn't see anything. 
And it's important to know too, like when we say that the official surge only lasted until September 7th, I mean, there were countless people involved. So it was many, many man hours were spent in that week period for the official search. Right, like thousands of man hours. Right. And and so even afterward, though, for five months after the disappearance, there were a dozen detectives who were assigned to the case as part of a special task force. So that was their kind of primary focus, you know, for their work was to try and find the family um and crime scene investigate it is it's it's an insane amount of work and you know crime scene investigators like literally sifted through dirt to try and find evidence of like a metal casing from a bullet or any like kind of scrap of information like literally with sifting pans like sifting dirt to try and see if they could find anything that the naked eye couldn't see and they didn't find anything either uh, teams also spent a lot of time searching abandoned mine shafts in the area, um, which there are a lot of. Um, and they, you know, thought, well, okay, maybe the family like accidentally fell, or maybe some like weird thing happened where they were kidnapped, or maybe they're hiding out in mine shafts for some reason. Like they're trying to think of any and all possibilities. And they did searches there and they they couldn't find anything. I mean, that makes um, sense. You know, you, you think about like two people going hiking through the woods. If somebody falls at a mine shaft or falls down a hill or something, it's it's kind of common. I know it happens still occasionally in Yellowstone where somebody will mm-hmm. fall off a cliff or off a waterfall and somebody, you know, if they're if it's only two people and, you know, someone falls, the other person's going to go try to help them and they may also fall. And now you have two people that are stuck somewhere, injured somewhere or you know, Mm -hmm. worse. And if that were to happen to both parents, I don't really like either child's chances at that point. You know, it's, it's kind of a fair fair thing to think, especially if they're still not really, you know, like it could still be an accident at this point, as far as the police. Absolutely. Right. And I mean, they're just trying to find answers, you know, if they can find the family alive, that is obviously the best solution and that's what they want. But if that's not going to be a possibility, they want to provide closure to the family because, you know, there's nothing quite as awful as having family members who are missing because you have that hope that something, you know, could be found and they could be okay. But you're kind of teetering, you know, on the edge of kind of two possibilities. And it's very difficult. So they, they work very, very hard. And every day that passes, you know, the less the less likely that is. But I mean, so this went on for five months. Yeah. And they also during this time brought in like canine units and they weren't able to track the family either, which kind of begs the question, you know, did this mean that they had been taken away in a car, for example, like not their own car, because that was obviously found at the site. But, you know, did somebody force them into their car and drive away? Um, Because that's an area where a canine, you know, group would lose the trail. And they even had a reward put up. So it was $2,000, which is like nothing to sneeze at in today's money or in 1974's money. Um, But nothing came up. No one said anything. No new tips came in or leads. Um, And in October of that year, so we're talking the month after they had disappeared, uh, Richard's sister wrote a letter to the editor of the Medford Mail Tribune, which was like a local newspaper. And she asked hunters who are prepping for the hunting season to be on the lookout for any clue or any sign of the family, which is really smart, in my opinion, because hunters are going to be combing the area, you know, spending a lot of time and they might happen upon something. And so if they 
were kind of keeping their you know eyes peeled for something out of the ordinary, they could really help in this case. So we're on the other side of winter in the Pacific Northwest now. We're it's five months later, we're into spring. It's like March. Yeah, April. so even... Right. So even after, you know, in October, she wrote that letter to the editor. So that was about a month after and nothing turned up. Um, And five months later, you're right. We're on the other side of winter and we're still not seeing anything, Um, which is an important note, too, because, you know, it snows that can kind of impede the investigation. But even as we get into spring, we're not finding anything. Um, And concerned citizens from all over wrote to Oregon Senator and pleaded for the FBI to get involved. But the important thing to know here is that there was not any evidence of a crime. Like, it's weird. It doesn't seem right. But there was no blood. There were no signs of a struggle. There wasn't a ransom note. Nothing like that had been found. And there was no evidence that the family had been taken across state lines. So there wasn't a good reason to pull the FBI in at the time. And in local PD's defense, the police department's um, defense, they had gotten a lot of help from different state agencies. Like we were saying, you know, local police forces, the state police, all that kind of stuff. So I don't think it was necessarily a failing on their part to not pull in the FBI. But I'm sure that the FBI doesn't just every single time local police are like, hey, come check out this case that they're like, yeah, we definitely have the manpower for that. Let's do it. Like, I'm sure that they would have had to plead a case and that they thought that maybe the FBI would turn them down or also say there's no real precedent for us to get involved here. Right. And, you know, based on what we know now, I don't know what we're going to learn later in the story, but based on what we know now, there's nothing to say that I guess there's there's not really much for the FBI to do that state and local agencies already aren't doing right. They're searching all the mine shafts. Right. They're going across all the trails. Like arguably the, the, the state park and national park resources are the, you know, like park troopers and, and park rangers are kind mm-hmm. of the most well-equipped to be doing this. And they're the ones that are already involved on top of that. You have, you know, the five local detectives that are part of this, uh, you know, special, special squad of people who are assigned directly to this case to find this missing mm-hmm. family. There's not really like what, what, what else are, is, is the FBI going to do that these local folks who are more familiar with the area and more familiar with all the people in the area and familiar with this family aren't going or aren't doing already. Right. So. Right. And it wasn't like they had evidence, but they didn't know what to do with it. I mean, there was no evidence. There right. was right. really nothing here. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so that leads us into, you know, theories at the time, because like what could have happened to this family? Um, so kind of going back to, we talked about way at the start of the episode, the Cowdens were pretty well set financially. They weren't rich. But they didn't have any significant debts. Neither of the parents had known like gambling or drug issues. They weren't behind on any of their payments. And like I mentioned as well, with Richard's job, you know, being a truck driver for logging, his job paid very well. So the family was quite comfortable. So this doesn't, you know, seem to lead to thinking, okay, well, they ran away because they were in debt or they owed a bunch of money to some nefarious figures who were after them. 
it didn't seem like that was an option or a possibility at all. Right. Um, and according to Anne Rule's book in specific, Richard's family didn't think that they would run away like that um, voluntarily anyway, because the family had been absolutely devastated when his older brother died from cancer. And it's important to note that at the time that the family went missing, they were waiting to hear if another sibling of Richard's, Wes, who helped with the searches, had cancer as well. Oh, God. Um, yeah, so Wes had just had surgery and he was starting to, you know, mend from that. So this was like a very tumultuous time in the family's history. They were, like I said, very close and there for each other. So it didn't seem like Richard, in the midst of all this, would choose to leave his family. If he were um, to fly the coop, now would be a really bad time. <laughs> Right, exactly. And not like say anything to his family once he's settled in a different area or try and signal to them that he's okay. Right. It's also just weird to, you know, if they're going to leave, it's the 70s. Like, you know, I think about that sometimes where it's like these days in 2000, it'd be really hard to like, you know, get in a car and and go somewhere and not have and, you know, like suddenly be a missing person. It'd be really easy for the police or you know, federal agencies to track you down basically immediately in 1974. Not that hard. You could just get in the car and go. There's no cell phones. There's no GPS. <laughs> like if you felt you don't like, leave a digital trail. Yeah. You don't leave a digital trail and leaving physical trails is even, you know, less so because cars weren't even smart back then. Right. Like cars didn't have mm -hmm. built in GPS or anything like that. Like if they mm -hmm. wanted to leave going and picking up a carton of milk from the general store in copper and then camping for a while and then disappearing in under the most conspicuous of circumstances is not really the way to do it. They could have just gotten in the car and gone to another state and no one would have been able to find them. <laughs> like, Right. So like that just didn't really seem plausible or like an option. Yeah. Um, you know, and something we kind of touched on too was that it doesn't really seem like this was a robbery because we have, you know, Richard's watch, his yeah. wallet, Belinda's purse. And the important thing to note was there wasn't any money missing. So it's not like they opened the wallet and all the cash is gone. Well, and the, it doesn't, the, the car was there. The keys to the car were there, right? Like if someone's right, so it wasn't you, like a, like, Right. Like, I want your car. Like, that didn't happen. Right. I want your car. I want your watch. I want your wallet. I want your purse. Like, all of that stuff was left behind. All of their personal effects were there. They weren't robbed, except of their themselves, you know? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> right. And, you know, moreover, we talked about an accident happening because they had been wearing their swimsuits, presumably, since that was what was missing. Not but great climbing water... attire. Not great hiking attire. <laughs> no, but like, like there's no way that they could have drowned because we probably would have found them because we didn't find any bodies and the creek had very low water levels. So it's not like, okay, they, you know, all happened to fall into the creek and drown and were brought downstream or something. I mean, that's just not really like, not really likely. Well, and um, you know, it's like... If I were to jump into the Mississippi River up here in Minnesota, I wouldn't make it to the Gulf of Mexico, right? Like, that's not that's not what happens to rivers, right? Like, if they're in the river, even if it was deep enough for them to, you know, drown or get injured and float downstream, they usually would have washed up someplace downstream fairly close by, and presumably the dogs would have found them or all of the search parties would have found them or right. You know, and it wasn't even a river. It was a Creek. Right. Like this is a very small body of water. So, so that also does not seem likely at all. Right. 
And investigators also kind of you know, thought, well, maybe there was like a sexual motivation, like maybe somebody saw Belinda and wanted to attack her. But then what happened to the rest of the family? Like, where where are they? Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Right. And why um, did the dog get away and, and show up back in town? You know, it's like there's just there's a lot of weirdness. Right. And it, it's important, you know, as we're looking back to keep in mind that this was at the same time as Ted Bundy was killing women in the Pacific Northwest. But this did not fit his M.O. at all. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there were missing people in the Pacific Northwest, specifically women. I so that wasn't that. It, right. So it wasn't like a wholly new thing, but there weren't cases of entire families going missing at large. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we have like 20 missing families right now. Right. A woman so, and two and her two children. Like <laughs> that's that's new. Right. So without evidence, like we talked about and without any leads. The case went cold. To listen next time to find out what happened to the family. Oh, no, it's a cliffhanger. There's a lot of information we got to get through, folks. 